0: Thank you for listening to the New Life Church Podcast. If you need any information about our church, or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at newlifekingman.com. Jesus, hallelujah. I love worship services like that, amen? You say, well, that's a little radical. Amen. You haven't seen nothing yet. (laughs) I love what David said. He goes, you know, if you think today was bad, tomorrow it's going to be even worse. If you think I was vile today, just wait, amen. You know, there's something about when you get into that place of praise and worship. There's something about his presence. I, the other day, I was telling my wife this. The other day, I, I <laughs> this is gonna sound really kind of stupid, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I, I decided to do the dishes. I know that's a miracle. It's like, wow, revival in the pool home, Yeah and so and, and to be honest with you, I hate loading the dishwasher. I hate loading the dishwasher so much that I decided to wash all the dishes by hand, all the pots, the pans, the silverware, everything. I hate the dishwasher i don 't know why I just do anyway, I decided that what I would do is i 'd put on on uh, YouTube on my TV and just have worship going on. And so I turned my surround sound on. And so I had all the, you know, and I got this big thumping bass and, you know, it was loud. You could, I know that the neighbors heard it. That's okay. It's it's a passive evangelism. Amen. So I turned it on and and I had that song, uh, Waymaker, you know, uh, He's, you know, he makes, he's Waymaker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness, all of that. And, and they were singing. And in this particular version, this one church, they sung that one song for 28 minutes. And I was like, wow. And even, even the worship leader, they got up and they said, you know, I know you're probably thinking, why are you repeating this over and over? And it's not because God needs it repeated. We need it repeated. We need to sing it because there's something that happens. And I'm telling you, there's some, something happened in my front room. My, if you were in my house, my front room, my, then the counter of our sink, and you can see the, and there was this presence. And the presence was so thick, I had to stop washing dishes. And that was okay, praise God. <laughs> That was really good. And I just got worshiping God and, and he came in there and I began to cry like a big old baby and, and, and just God just met me in that place. And there's something about worship, worship. See, when they, when they worshiped the Lord in the Old Testament, he would come, his presence, his manifest presence, some called it the Shekinah glory of God, would come into that place. People were uh, uh, healed instantly. People were delivered and set free and, and all manner of things took place because in the presence of God is everything we need. Can you say amen? amen. And so that's why we contend in worship. And, and I know, because there's times when I come into church, I could tell you this, I'll, I'll, be, I'll just open up to you and be a little vulnerable. There's times where I don't wanna worship. I don't want to. Say, so why? I don't know, I just don't want to. You ever get in one of those moods? You know, it's kind of like a four-year-old. Why aren't, why? I don't know, I don't want to. It's like, you know, and you're like, why? why is it that this is happening? And I don't know, but that's in those moments that I have to make a quality decision and go, I don't care what you want. You're gonna worship him and you're gonna step into that. And when I step in, when I, when I even just, just making the first step, something begins to change. You know, we are looking, we are looking for God to move in our lives. How many would say that's true? Raise your hand if you're looking for God to move in your life. Amen, just about everybody here. I'm telling you, I guarantee you, I absolutely guarantee you, it's 100% guarantee if you'll worship him, he will move in your life. He will. You say, I gotta get wild and crazy? You might have to. You say, "Why? Why do I got to do that?" It's not about getting wild and crazy. It's about getting that flesh, that that thing, that that thing that holds us. It's it's letting loose. I remember the, I remember years and years ago. This is funny because everything's relative. Everything's relative. This is all free, so this is no charge on this. So anyway, um, Kathy and I had gone down to Needles. We were pastoring in Needles, and we were there probably about six months, and. Uh, Pastor Howard asked me to come back on a Wednesday night to preach in Kingman. And so all the way back to Kingman, I'm telling Kathy in the car, I said, I am going to tear it up. I'm gonna be wild. I'm gonna be crazy. I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand on top of the pulpit if I have to. I'm just gonna, I am just letting it all go tonight. And I did, buddy. Boy, I got up there and I had my sermon and I, from my perspective, I was a wild man. From my perspective, it was all on the table. And we get done and pulled the altar call and everything was fine and all that. We get done and I says to Kathy, I goes, I was pretty wild, wasn't I? And she just looked at me and goes, not really. It was okay. Okay. So I thought, well, you're biased, you know. I was, uh, so I asked somebody uh, somebody else I asked Pam Penny, to, I says, I was pretty wild, huh? I was pretty 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 out of control, wasn't I? She goes, No, not really. You were pretty calm. <laughs> and in my mind, I am a nutcase. In my mind, I was doing flips on the stage. I was doing cartwheels. In my mind, I saw a wild man. I was ready to tear open my shot everything. I was just a wild man. And 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 but but the reality is it wasn't that bad. And see, well, what's the moral of that story? Sometimes our perception of being wild and crazy just ain't that bad. And sometimes what we need to do is just let her go. Now, some of you, and you know who you are and I won't point to you, you're, you're wild and crazy is a little all that. But that's okay, God knows, God knows. And said, why are you saying this? Because it is my, someone asked me the question the other day, what do you really want? What do you really want to accomplish in church? More than anything. More than anything, what I want in church is I want you to encounter Jesus. Yes. Encounter Jesus. That's what I want you to do. I want, I want you to have that moment with him because one moment, one moment in time with Jesus changes everything, everything. So this morning, I, I, I wanna remind you uh, that last week I told you that we were finishing up our series. That's not true. God changed my mind for me. He often does that. And he gave me an, another sermon. Actually, he gave me this sermon. And, and what's funny is what I, he gave me another sermon. And um, next week's sermon is, is gonna be called Encountering Jesus. And so it all fits within the subject of hope. You know, we've been talking about this. We've been talking about hope being the anchor for our soul. And there's a scripture in Hebrews that talks about that. And the reason that I have felt like we've needed to talk about that and go there is because one of my observations in Christianity as I talk to Christians is that because of the fact that we are in such a battle right now, that there are so many things that are coming against uh, the people of God. That there are many that are coming to this place where they're feeling helpless and hopeless. It's nothing for us to say today that many of us are fighting battles on multiple fronts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're fighting in our finances. We're fighting in our health. We're fighting in our relationships. We're fighting in in in, in just in our minds. The torment that goes on. And there's a real strategy of hell right now that is at work in the church that's trying to wear out the saints. It's, it's not a new strategy. It's not something like it's just brand new for this season, but it's something that is often, uh, uh, that comes against the church and then the people of God, if we're not careful, we can fall victim to it. We can come into a place where we begin to believe lies. We begin to believe that we're actually helpless and hopeless. Can you say amen? But there's never a time, I wanna tell you, I wanna assure you this morning, that there is never a time, there is never, not one time, ever in your Christianity where you are helpless and hopeless. Ever, unless you choose to be. The only way that that can be a reality is if that's what you choose. But even in the midst of that choice, the reality is there is grace that is available for you that all you have to do is just turn. Now I would, I, I would like to say that some of us, the reason that we're struggling is because we're having a struggle in our faith, and oftentimes, when preachers say that, it comes across as if I'm saying, or, or preachers are saying, that you don't have enough faith. That is not what I'm saying. Because having enough faith is kind of a uh, kind of a stupid statement. And the reason why is because Jesus said that faith the size of a grain of mustard a mustard seed, is enough to move mountains. So it's not about the quantity of faith, it's literally about choosing faith. It's about simply choosing that instead of fear. And this is what I wanna say to you, I, I just wanna make this statement as before we go on, and we'll get there here in just a second, but you know, there is a strategy, there is a, a strategy, we, we like to think it's the media, it's not the media, the media is a tool. We like to think it's the government. It's not the government. The government's a tool. Okay, there is a bigger, more sinister source for this kind of fear, and it's called the devil. It's called hell. And so here we have this new thing called the coronavirus, and and there are people that are very, very frightened. And the reality is that fear is being perpetuated by these tools. Now, once again, I'm not here to say that there's not a reason for concern and that we should be careful. And that, you know, it's just like I, I had a doctor say to me one time, he, I said, doc, I want to lose weight. And he goes, I'm going to give you a perfect diet plan. Eat less, move more. Yeah. That's how simple it is. See, make sure I love, I saw a meme on Facebook and the guy's looking at the empty shelf of where all the hand sanitizer and soap is. And he goes, weren't you washing your hands before? It's like, how come all of a sudden we're really washing our hands? Well, thank God, it's, you know, that's a good thing. Washing your hands is a good thing. Wash your hands, don't touch your face, and stay away from people that are, got some illness. You know, just somewhere along the line, there's some common sense things, but what we do is we run into this place as if God is helpless in all of this. God is still a healer, can you say amen? And he is still able. Not only is he able to heal, he's able to prevent. But what we have to do is it's not, faith is not checking your brains at the door. Faith is simply saying that the fear is not gonna control my life. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so rather than checking our brains at the door and running headlong into fear, let's go, you know what, God, I'm gonna do my due diligence to stay healthy, but I know that I have you in the background. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. I'm off my soapbox. That was all free, no charge. If you have your Bibles, turn with me over to Psalms chapter 42. Psalms chapter 42, I'm gonna be reading out of the NIV this morning and I wanna look at six verses of scripture. And the Bible says this, David's writing, he says, as a deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Don't, how many have ever asked that question? When can I get, can I get an audience with you, God? I have a few questions that I'd like to ask you. You know, there's some things that I need to know. This is where David's at. He goes, my tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my savior, my God, my soul. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Now this is a powerful psalm that we need to understand. David is obviously experiencing a difficult time. He's longing for God because the struggle has become very real. It's not a struggle that's uh, in theory, it's not talking about bad days may come, they're here. They're difficult. Not only is he being tormented inside, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, but he's being tormented from the outside. People are coming to him saying all day long, where is your God? Where is he now? What's gonna happen? It's it's not a legitimate question. It's a mockery. They're coming to him and they're saying, you know, you, you ran your mouth. You said God would show up. Well, where is he? Where is he? What's what's going on? Where is your God now? And then he begins to do what is very human. He begins to long for the days that are gone by. He's longing for better days. He's longing for the good old days. Amen. Isn't that so much like us? Isn't that so much like us? We, we get into a situation, we get into a crisis and, and then instead of looking forward, we start looking backward and we go, you know what, back then things were so much better. Back then, back then things were so much better. We, we long for better days because we've become discouraged and disillusioned and depressed, helpless and hopeless. And we look with fondness on these good old days, as if in those days, there were no problems. <laughs> Convincing ourselves that we are, what we are currently experiencing is worse. Are you hearing me? Isn't that what the children of Israel did? God sets them free. I mean, when you follow the story of Exodus and you spend some time reading through what God did, he did 10 outstanding miracles to deliver them. I mean, these were unheard of miracles. Not only that, but when Pharaoh finally said, fine, get out of here, God put it into the heart. You read it, read it in Exodus. God put it into the heart of every Egyptian to give them all their stuff. (laughs) I mean, that's just mind boggling. They don't even have to wrestle for it. They are so glad to get them out of the land, they go, you get out of here and take all our stuff with you. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. But yet they get out into the wilderness. They're not out there long and they come to a place of crisis. Now the amazing thing is God is wanting to do something very powerful in them. He's taking them to a promised land and he wants to be their God and he wants to show them things that they've never seen and on top of that, he wants to show the rest of the world that he is God and that they are his people. And so they come up to a situation that requires a miracle. But instead of looking to God, and looking to what he has already done, <clears throat> they look back into slavery. Yeah. If you go read it, you can, you can. Spend some time, I challenge you, go read it. Here's the verse, that the, this is the amazing verse. They begin to long, the Bible says, for free fish. Yeah, they long for leeks and onions, but there's one verse I thought it was really interesting when I read it. They longed for free fish. Forget the fact They were not free. So what that meant, they ain't getting, you know, they're not getting halibut. They're getting carp. Mudsuckers. They're getting bottom feeders. Somehow they convinced themselves, yep, them carp in Egypt were a lot better than where we're at now. Because it was free. You're not free, but your carp is. You say, how do you cook a carp? Let me tell you, this is a recipe. It's a little free, I'm gonna just, it's a public service that I offer. It's a free recipe on how to cook carp. What you do is you get your carp, you fillet it, you put it on a, a piece of oak and you nail it down. You use four nails and you nail it down on this oak. Then you heat your oven to 750 degrees. Then you put that, the board and the carp in the oven for eight hours at 750 degrees. When it's done, you pull it out and you eat the board. That's how bad carp are. Okay. And so here's the children of Israel. They're looking back. They're looking back into, e- into slavery, into Egypt, where they had harsh taskmasters, and they're longing for the days of leek, onion, leeks and onions and free fish. Never mind what God is doing in the moment. I know there was a challenge. I know there was a situation. But God has a plan, and God is is coming through. Can you say amen? Amen. Now in David's story, as fast as the struggle seemed to come upon him, so did his epiphany. You need to see this in this passage because David, he admits, he goes, you know what? I'm longing for you, God. I can't seem to find you right now. Things are going bad. There's not a good thing. This is bad. But then he says, he goes, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? He has a wake-up call and he remembers something else. He, he stops for a minute and goes, wait a second. Why are you traveling down this road? Why are you letting your circumstances inform your decisions? Why are you letting your situation I, uh, define your identity? Why are you letting what's going on around you tell you who God is in your life? Why are you doing that? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And then he says something amazing. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. See, hoping in God does not come natural for us, does it? Hoping God doesn't come natural. Hope just doesn't come natural. It's just part of our makeup. We have to do something. This is what David's saying. He goes, make a decision. You could choose this. You can go down that road. You can be discouraged. You can be disillusioned. You can be bummed out. Or you could put your hope in God. You can make a choice. See, we have to preach to ourselves. We have to preach diligently and forcefully to ourselves or we will give way to discouragement every time. See, the best sermon you may hear in your life may be the one you preach to yourself. And it may only be five words long. Put hope in God. Listen to me. This is a little weird. I'll just go on record. You know, there's something interesting. I'll share a little bit about my story. There's been something that's happened to me in the last 10 years or so. I've been kind of on this journey. It's kind of, I would, for the lack of a better word, I would call it a journey of awakening. Some stuff I I knew about a long time ago. I actually walked in it, but for circumstances and reasons beyond complete understanding, I kind of drifted away from it. And then about 10 years ago, started coming back toward it. And in this time, I've come to discover that there are many things that I hold to intellectually in belief system, but I do not hold to in practice. See, we, we're, really good at, we're really good at finding scriptures that we love. You know, we, you know, the power of life and death are in the tongue and we go, whoa. You have the power of life and death in your tongue. What does that mean? That means that you can speak things into life or you could speak things into death. It's your choice. We think about the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We think about the fact that we are, in fact, God's dwelling place, that Jesus dwells in us, that he no longer dwells in temples made by men's hands, but he dwells in the hearts of men. And we think about the fact that the Bible says that in him, in Jesus, all of the Godhead dwells bodily. And that dwells in us. And then we think about the things when we talk about the blood of Jesus and it's the most powerful substance on the planet. We think about the word of God that we could speak the word. We, we even think Pastor Howie last Wednesday preached on angels and we love the thought of angels as long as they stay little precious moment. <laughs> little fat, little cute, little baby angels. You know what I'm saying? Well, I, I, and we love the thought of that until all of a sudden somebody starts talking about angels. It's like, ooh, man, don't creep me out, man. Let me tell you something, there are more angels in this room than there are people. It's a little weird. I know, it's, it's, it's like, well, what see, there's a guardian angel up here right now. And I, you know, my little, my angel is not a little fat guy. He's not, I know I'm a little fat guy, but my angel is not a little fat guy. My angel stands probably about 15 feet tall. And he has a flaming sword drawn all the time. And then he has another one that sheathed on his back just in case that one falls out of his hand. And he's got muscles on top of muscles and he is not good looking. And I, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to but anyway, you know that's weird, isn't it? Who are you talking to? I'm talking to my angel. I just apologize for calling him ugly. So well that's weird. It is a little weird. I'll admit that. But we're Christians and and God said his angels are ministers to those that inherit eternal life. And my angel ain't good looking. You say, why ain't he good looking? Because he's got a grimace, man. You mess with me and you're, you're dealing with him. He said, "Why do you want him ugly? Because I don't want him cute. I don't want him a little precious moment, little butterfly floating around. I want this dude taking care of business. You know what I mean? I want him. I want him to wear the battle scars. I want him. I want him with leathers on. I. I, I want him with spikes and I, long hair. And I, I. I want him to ride a Harley. And I, I. You know, I just want. I want. You know what I mean? I want him bad to the bone." You go, oh, that's a little silly. It may be. I really, you know, I've never seen him. I don't know what he looks like. That's my imagination. But you know what? Somewhere along the line, what I've done is come to this place that I believe he's real. And so I'm never alone. And when hell's coming against me, when the devil's sowing thoughts in my mind, there's an angel that's trying to whack his head off. Amen. Amen. The book of Daniel, Daniel begins to pray and the angel shows up after 21 days of prayer and fasting and he says, the day you prayed, the, the, the message was dispatched. He says, but I got stuck fighting the prince of power of the heir of Persia, the prince of Persia. So Michael came to assist me. I mean, this is Bible church. And, and you know what, under that covenant, it was a lesser covenant. Under this covenant, not only do we have that angelic power, but we have power of the word of God. We have Holy Spirit that lives within us. Are you hearing me? And sometimes what happens is we walk around as if we have nothing, that we're helpless and hopeless, and church is just not true. See, I love the way David wrestles and fights and struggles to maintain his hope. It helps me to realize that sometimes finding that place where we can lock on to hope can be difficult. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. And so what I think we, we need to do is we need to look at it this way. Hope is like a reservoir of emotional strength that comes literally out of our relationship with God. You see what do you mean? And I'm gonna show you this here a little bit later, but let me explain what I mean your hope, your your reservoir of hope is gonna come from that place where you've come to understand God. And if your understanding of God, if it's limited, if it's thin, if 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 it's immature, then the tendency is our hope will be immature. It'll be thin. That's why we talk about we need to know him. Not just know about him. We need to know him. We need to experience him. Why? Because it builds something in us. See, if I'm put down, if I'm taken advantage of, if I'm misunderstood, if if I'm manipulated or humiliated, if I'm ignored or rejected or neglected, if I'm lied to or betrayed or, or abandoned or abused, it's, it's the emotional reservoir of hope that has its foundation in my rev, revela- or in my uh, uh, relationship with Jesus. It's that uh, relational reservoir of hope that gives me the strength to stand in the moment of crisis. Yeah. See, without hope, we don't have any power to absorb the wrong and to walk in love. We sink into self-pity and self-justification and we become harsh and unforgiving. If I experience a setback in my plans or if things don't go the way I hope for, in my interaction with people or in my prayers or or how I want things to be done, I can find myself in a difficult season and I, I look to the emotional reservoir of hope for the strength to keep going and not to give up. If I face temptation to be dishonest or to steal or to lie or to walk in lust, I look to the emotional reservoir of hope for the strength to hold fast to my righteousness. That's the power of hope. Are you hearing me? See, listen, biblical hope doesn't just believe for good things in the future. It expects them to happen. Are you hearing me? I was talking with a friend of mine in the office last week and he was telling me, he goes, you know, I I just got to ask a question. He says, I see so many people with, problem, after problem, after problem, after problem. And he goes, and I just don't see that in my life. So we got talking about that, and we got talking about how, you know, culture, and, and, and generations, and what we've faced as young people, and, and all of that. We are living in a society today where people are having hopeless moments over very little things. And part of it is because we've taken the struggle out of life a little bit. We've tried to make everything easy. And so there's no, there's no uh, uh, endurance. There's no ability to stand. But also what's happened in the church is we, we've dulled God down. God is an awesome God. He lives in fire. He's a consuming fire, the Bible says. He's awesome. You stand in awe of it. He's breathtaking. If he were to walk in here right now, we would all fall to our face. There would be nobody that would be arrogant going, hey, what's up, God? We'd all be on the ground. He's awesome. But what happens is because of the fact that we don't know him, because of the fact we've never experienced him, because what happens a lot of times is we just kind of phone it in. We have no revelation of him. My prayer and my hope today is that God will fill your reservoir to overflowing, so that no matter what season of life you find yourself in, good or bad, you will be able to reach deep inside and be able to find the strength to stand and to overcome. Another friend of mine called me the other day and he <clears throat> he asked me a question. He was convinced that God had forsaken him and forgotten him. Lots of problems. Lots of difficulty. Life didn't at that moment seem to be fair. It was, everything seemed to be balanced in the other direction. And he says, I have a question, and, and I'm sure it's a question at one time or another we have all either thought or asked. He says, does God see what's happening to me? Is God aware of what's going on? Where is he at? Is he there? Does God know? Does God know? And I think we've all come to that place. There's been times where life has gotten difficult, and we've wondered, are you, are you aware? <clears throat> are you aware what's going on? Do you know what the circumstances are? Do you know what's happening? Because it's easy to believe in times of trouble that God has somehow closed his eyes or he's changed his view. It's easy to believe that he's paying attention to something else. It's easy to wonder, where is God at? And there's a great story in the Old Testament that speaks directly to this. Because this is a very real question that I believe we need to have answered. And it's the story of Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian servant girl. In Genesis chapter 16, the Bible tells us that Abraham and Sarah are still believing for the promise. They haven't had their child yet. So they decide they're going to go ahead and help out God. Amen. We all come to that point. It's like, well, maybe I need to get a little bit more involved in this process. And so the Bible tells us that Sarah says, hey, you know what, I'm gonna have this servant girl of mine help you to produce a child on my behalf. Abraham's good with the plan. That's a whole nother sermon. And for Hagar, things begin to look up for a moment because her status of being a slave, of being a servant, is changing. She's no longer a slave, but now she's going to be the mother of a promise. But when Hagar becomes pregnant, she begins to communicate an air of superiority over Sarah. She begins to mock her a little bit. And Sarah ain't gonna have it. So she begins to mistreat her servant girl. And so things got so bad that Hagar took off into the desert. And it was dangerous. Because going out into the desert in that day wasn't like going out into the desert in our day, there was a lot more risk. But somehow she made it to a spring of water in the desert and she sat down. She was exhausted and no doubt she was confused. And her survival was uncertain. She began to wonder, what is going on? Is there any hope for me? And I'm certain she began to believe that the blessing has now become a curse. She felt abandoned by everyone, and probably including God. Helplessness and hopelessness with no discernible means of protection, complete vulnerability began to set in. But in the midst of that, something amazing begins to happen. Because in Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, the Bible says, now the angel of the Lord found her. We need to pay attention to that because it's a wonderful picture of the compassion of God. The angel of the Lord came to Hagar and they had a remarkable conversation. And in the midst of this conversation, they came up with a plan, and the angel tells her to go back to Sarah, that everything would change, and everything's going to be okay. And then in Genesis 16, 13, this is what I want you to see. The Bible says, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Now, this is a moment, this is... A remarkable thing because God sees Hagar's affliction. And the result is because God saw her, she was able to see his grace and his mercy. Because God saw her affliction, she was able to see his provision. Are you hearing me? There's something about this, because listen, she says, you are the God who sees. And because I've seen you, or you've seen me, I can now see you. Do you know something? Is Hagar was the only person that ever gave a name to God. Everyone else, every place else, either people are naming altars, or the place, or they're naming, or God's declaring his name. But in this scripture, this Egyptian servant, slave, because of this remarkable revelation, gives God a name, the God who sees. Hagar enters into a relationship with God that reshapes her identity and her circumstances. No longer is she just a slave, but she is an heir to a promise. And there, besides the well, she proclaims, you are the God who sees. You are the God that sees. And ultimately, Hagar's story is more than a story of a slave and her son, but it's a story of God's care for those who have no earthly hope. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what your struggles are. But I know this, God sees. And because God sees, you can see. Are you hearing me? David had this same revelation in Psalm 139. He says this, I am an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back, I ne- I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me and you're there, then I look ahead and you're there to your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much, too wonderful, I can't take it all in. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already waiting there. Then I said to myself, oh, he even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in light. It's a fact, darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. God sees. I don't know what you're going through, but God sees. He sees what you're going through. God knows every detail of your situation. And the good news about that is he knows every detail from an unbiased position. That means God sees the whole situation all at once. With every circumstance, every situation, every variable, he understands what you're going through. He knows what you've said. He knows what you felt. He knows where you're going, who you've done, and all of these different things. He knows what is going on in your life. David says, it's too wonderful for me to know. But I wonder sometimes if we don't just, and I'm bringing this to a close. Jason can come if he'd like I wonder sometimes if we come to this place where we begin to wonder, okay, that's great, God sees, but he must just be a casual observer. See, it's one thing to see, but it's another thing to be involved, isn't it? And I wonder sometimes if we don't just buy into that. It's like, yeah, you know, I know God's able, but is he willing? I know God sees, but is he going to do anything about what he sees? And there's a verse of scripture that declares the character of Jesus. And you need to understand something. Jesus is the reflection of the Father in heaven. There's a sign that the uh, um, uh, Grace Lutheran Church has on their, on their uh, uh, marquee as you go down Harrison. It says this, Jesus is God's selfie. The Bible says it this way, Jesus is the express image of the Father so jesus's character what he demonstrated is who god is and in matthew chapter 9 verses 35 and 36 it says then jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and listen and healing every sickness and every disease among the people but when he saw the multitudes but when he saw the multitudes when he saw the multitudes he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary, scattered like sheep, like sheep having no shepherd. He saw them, he was moved with compassion. This statement moved with compassion, it literally is talking about moving to action. It's not just compassion. He didn't just feel something. The the word compassion literally has the, the meaning to be to step into the shoes of another. To walk in my footsteps to experience what i experience and then to respond to it the bible tells us in this verse is that he's going through villages he's going through cities and he's healing and he's moving and he's ministering why because he's motivated by compassion and that compassion came out of what he saw one final scripture that puts the capstone on this Hebrews chapter four, verse 13 through 16 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Seeing then, isn't that wonderful? Here's the revelation. Nothing is outside of his sight. Nothing is hidden from him because he has eyes to see. Now I can see. That's way too good for that response right there. I'm going to read it again. There is no creature hidden from his sight. You're a creature, right? There's no person hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to to whom we must give account. The next word. Seeing them the reason we can see is because he first saw. He saw me. He saw my need. Close to 8 billion people on the planet and he sees me and he sees you. And because of that, I could see then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Church, I don't know where you may be or what you're struggling with, but I can tell you God sees. And he's motivated by what he sees. He's compassionate. He's compassionate he's going to get involved he is involved that, that's the story of. that's the essence of the song Waymaker even when I don't see you working I know you are I know you are church the only time that God can't work is when we don't let him God's a gentleman he will not force his will on you You have to let him. You have to come to him. He sees. He knows right where you're at. He knows exactly what's going on. Some of you have thought that you've been forgotten. You have not been forgotten. He's right there. He's right there. And he's up to something wonderful. Can you say amen? Bow your heads. Father, right now, in Jesus' name, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your glory. We thank you, God, that you have given us this revelation. We thank you, Lord, for the knowledge of knowing, God, that you see us and that you make a way for us. Father, we pray, God, that your hand would be upon us. Father, help us, God, encourage us. Father, I pray, God, that every person in this room, God, would come boldly before your throne, that they would lay at your feet, God, Problems, the situations, the difficulties, knowing, God, that you are aware of them all and that you are taking action and that you're helping us. And Father, we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. is it Thank you for listening to the New Life Kingman podcast. We can't wait to see you next week.